And now, business games. Welcome to episode 6 of Business Games, a podcast where we apply game theoretic concepts to business to help you make better decisions under uncertainty. Today I'm honored to have as a guest somebody who needs no introduction, but will get a very short one anyway. Uh, and for the audience's benefit, if you haven't heard of Ogilvy as a company, then what have you been doing? We've got a vice chairman of Ogilvy, the author of Alchemy, Rory Sutherland. Hello, Rory. Uh, hello, great pleasure to be on. I, I have to so, admit, I don't know very much about game theory, except to know that it's obviously more important than people think it is in many business settings. Well, excellent. So uh, I will, will not do a primer, but what I will say is this. I'm building up to a, a season dedicated fully to game theory, but I decided to start slowly. And actually, the very first season is experimental for both meta reasons as well as uh, specific reasons that I think experiments in business are gaining traction in the business literature. And so I thought, okay, let's uh, dive into it. When I first planned this episode, I thought what I'd do is I'd summarize what I've uh, learned through the first five episodes and then try and bridge the gap uh, between, um, at a first glance, basically a dry scientific topic of uh, experimentation with the topic of the next season of business games, which is going to be all about psychology and biases, so to speak, uh, to bridge the experimental and the mental. But then a couple of learning moments happened. Um, first, in the second episode, uh, talking to one of the top published academics in behavioral and experimental economics, kind of learned for myself or relearned for myself that experimental approach in economics is much closer to the psychology and uh, creative approaches in, in other subjects than it is to the mathematical economics. So what I thought was, you know, kind of a dry topic actually started becoming much less dry. And then, of course, a lot of other uh, things happened with the professionals in various um, industries who had uh, a very different approach uh, thinking about experiments than I think I started with. Second, uh, we're recording this after the Nash Stock 21, and uh, there are a couple of things that, Rory, you said there that illuminated my thinking about this. I will get to those in a second because I think that uh, probably should use them as the centerpiece for the discussion and uh, dive a bit deeper into this. So, and the third thing is reflecting on something that happened personally to me. I think it also blurred the lines between the the dryness of of a scientific approach and and creativity. And that thing is that a couple of years ago, reflecting on basically on my own creative endeavors, a couple of years ago, I did a month-long uh, stand-up comedy course. And at the end of it, we needed to prepare a set, a graduation set, which we presented to a paying audience. Um, they were not all our friends and family. And in fact, there were just a lot of people who just paid money to come there and they didn't know anything about us. And remembering what we've been taught about how to how to write jokes and then basically the whole process of of creating a five minute set was very much experimental it was you write something down you see if it works you say it out loud you practice it on your fellow students if it works great if it doesn't you go back to the writing board and that sort of experimental approach to um creativity was something that i thought i would focus on now so nice talk a couple of things that I will just reference for, for the audience. And of course, Rory, you, you know this because you, you just gave that speech. And also, we'll also highly recommend Nudge Stock, uh, which is free on YouTube. Just, you know, people should listen to it, I think. So um, you said, and I've rephrased it a little bit, but basically your quote about um, rigorous testing and measurement is creativity's bizarre half-sister. Absolutely right, yeah. And, so, uh, and uh, the, uh, they seem like very different disciplines. Um, I, I had the great fortune of starting my working life in the direct marketing arm of Ogilvy, what was then called Ogilvy and May the Direct. 
And of course, uh, since it was direct to consumer advertising, you measured response. And so it was actually a very, very happy marriage of, uh, uh, of creativity deployed to what you test and rigor applied to measuring the effects. And so in a sense, you, they're quite different people, you would think. But actually, what it really is, is uh, in the language of AI, it's the exploit-explore trade-off. Can you, and, uh, you know, double-click oh, so, on that? So, oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, was I, uh, I, I was on mute. No, uh, no, no, no. Terms, just just get, no, no. get deeper into that, oh, oh, into I that see. particular right. one. Okay. Um, so uh, there's a very good book by uh, uh, Brian Christian called Algorithms to Live By. He's also written um, a more recent book. Uh, actually, the re more recent book he wrote on his own, the book Algorithms to Live By, is co-authored by Tom Griffiths. But um, uh, the, um, the alignment problem, uh, which is how you align mathematically uh, with what humans really want, the full complexity of what humans really want or are trying to do. How do you define that mathematically, therefore, to arrive at kind of, uh, you know, optimal solutions which aren't hopelessly misaligned with human objectives because they're a crappy proxy for a human objective, okay? But Algorithms to Live By, he talks about this thing which in... I, I didn't realise it was called this. It's the exploit-explore trade-off, which is there's a ratio and a correct ratio of time spent exploring and time spent exploiting. Now, there's no point in, it's very inefficient just to explore if you never exploit what you learn, but it's also very dangerous, albeit short-term efficient, to over-index over, um, uh, over on exploit and spend too little money exploring. Because, first of all, you'll tend to become trapped in a local maximum. If all you're doing is exploiting what you already know, you'll never discover anything new and you'll never get lucky. But also you're hopelessly ill-prepared to adapt to changing circumstances. If you design everything around exploiting what you already know. And the danger, I think, that the tech industry and the technocratic elite, to use a kind of weird, I'm going to start talking about the mainstream media any moment now. But the, there's a kind of, I think, bias in the very clever people, but it's self-interested, the very clever people who are technocrats and very clever people who are involved in technology tend to peddle the myth or the belief that um, uh, that you can solve problems knowing just what you know. If you have enough data, then you know enough to optimally solve the problem. And I can't think of very many real-world cases, certainly not involving human behaviour, where you know enough already. Okay? And so... You have to give some consideration to experiment, to explore what it, the importance of what it is that you don't know. And the reason you don't know is the future is very, very different mathematically from the past. The past simply tells you about one, one parallel universe that happened to play out in reality, whereas the future contains many possible multiverses. So, so by looking, by modeling the past mathematically, all big data comes from the same place, right? The past, almost by definition. And by simply extrapolating from the past, you're obtaining a far narrower view of possible futures than might play out in reality. Uh, Nassim Taleb puts it like this, the future is much more uh, thick-tailed than the past. Um, and so the, the role of experimentation, I think, is absolutely vital, but also experimentation literally to the point of silliness. So the tendency is to say we more or less know what's going on here and we need to experiment around the edges. And I say, no, in most cases, we don't really have a clue what's going on here. And we need to experiment much, much more widely, at least to begin with. And I always say, uh, first of all, the, the first thing which is difficult to do is test things that don't make sense, literally. Test things that seem counterintuitive, nonsensical, that run, fly in the face of economic logic or economic models. You know, if your product isn't selling, you've got to test putting the price up. Don't just test putting the price down. Because, well, A, I wouldn't claim that putting the price up is as likely to work as putting the price down in terms of increasing sales. But it's a much more valuable discovery to make if you happen to be right. 
And so, I mean, by the way, that's more or less true of Peloton, it seems, that Peloton was, was really just, you know, it was an exercise bike with a screen and someone bullying you until they ramped their prices up and made it a kind of Veblen good, you know, a must-have among a certain class of people. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so uh, what, you, what you test, and the danger is you only test the things that make sense. And as a result, you're not really learning very much. What you're really doing is just adding a bit of mathematical rigor to your confirmation bias. But there's another problem with only testing things that make sense, which is that, one, if there were a logical solution to your problem, someone already would have found it, okay? Because there's no shortage of logical people in the world. And secondly, um, uh, generally, approaching a problem conventionally and logically tends to lead you to the same place as all your competitors, which is not a good place to be. You know, if you want to build a moat or if you want to actually be differentiated and distinguished from your competitors to the extent that you can charge a premium for whatever it is you do, you don't want to be indistinguishable from them because that's basically a shortcut to commoditization. And the other thing is that when you don't know everything you need to know, everybody in the the education system essentially rewards and prizes the ability to solve problems when all the information you need to solve that problem is already to hand. John Cleese talks about this, two buses leave a bus station, one travels due north at a constant 40 kilometres an hour, one travels due west at a constant 30 kilometres an hour. Something, by the way, that never happens in the real world, and you know absolutely everything you need to know, okay, about uh, in order to solve the problem with a single provably right answer based on ludicrous assumptions because buses never leave on time they don't travel in a straight line they get stuck in traffic uh you know in reality it never works like that but we've created this silly little artificial playground of models that happen to have single correct answers and where by the way the opposite of a right answer is wrong neil spore said the opposite of a good idea can be another great idea actually in the real world the opposite of a great idea can be another great idea. So it's very much unlike that mathematical world where there's a single best practice. Because best practice for Aston Martin is not best practice for Toyota, right? Okay. You know, there, you know, um, there, you know, there is Costco where you sell things in bulk uh, at a low margin, but at high volume. And there are dollar stores, which actually make higher volume, higher margins than Walmart and Costco, because they sell to cash constrained people, they sell things at a higher margin, but at a lower quantity. You can buy a small bottle of shampoo for a buck. Okay. And as someone said on Twitter, the opposite of a good business model can be another good business model. And so this whole idea of best practice and optimization is based on the pretense of knowledge, as Hayek would call it. And it's highly dangerous. Because it leads businesses to become more and more similar, which then from a game theoretic point of view means they have less and less um, a distinctive competitive advantage on which to actually command a premium. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the, the, other, the, the other thing is that, by the way, uh, we have a lot of people in decisions who are very, very good at analytics. Now, what, we're, what you're doing if you're being creative is the opposite of analytics, or rather it's analytics backwards. And if you go to Charles Sanders Peirce, the American logician of the 19th century, he calls it abruptive infer- sorry, abductive inference. It's not induction. It's not deduction. It's not hearing the facts, what will happen. It's reverse reasoning. Arthur Conan Doyle, in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, refers to it as reasoning backwards. Now, that demands a degree of hypothesis, imagination, and creativity. Okay? You could... So, Detective work is abductive inference. It's we have something strange. Now we need to consider what the conditions might have been prior to this state of affairs, which would have led to this pertaining. Okay, or you can say, I want to imagine I can imagine a different future where people do this. What would have to be in place in order for that to be the future rather than something else? Now, in both cases, you have to deploy imagination, but our technocratic elite are basically rewarded for their ability at imagine-free problem-solving. And so anything that involves hypothesis, imagination, or abductive inference, they tend to see as an impurity in the process, not an essential part of the process. And so economics is a classic case of that. It's, It's a science constructed on the pretense of absolute knowledge. 
when in reality it captures about 5% of what's going on, I would argue. Maybe a bit Trad- more. In certain situations, it's a bit. It's it's more than fifty percent. Traditionally, but, um, most but, most certainly. And yeah. so when I went uh, when I went through undergrad in the um, end of nineties, early noughts, and then through the uh, graduate study, I, I think that was the case. But I believe in the last fifteen years, the as as the behavioral economics uh, kind of came to the fore, I think it's changing. I hope it's changing because it's you know behavioral economics. It just started to see into what we've been doing but it was still a bit esoteric which is quite ironic because Kahneman and Tversky did their stuff in the 70s so. so if you're only allowed to innovate or you're only allowed to make decisions based on information you already have derived from the past your solution and this is a problem in academia and scientific research if you look at actually most really important scientific breakthroughs start with the abductive inference you know, uh, so Darwin, all these finches have funny shaped beaks. What might be at work in order to arrive at this outcome? You know, as I said, detective work is we have a corpse. What would the prior conditions have been that led to this event? And in marketing, it might be we would like it if more people did this thing. What would have to be in place in order for this thing to unfold? And in all of those cases, you can or we believe there's a p- potential for this product, but but now if you demand evidence of the popularity of a prob of, 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 of something before you attempt to innovate in that space, you're not really innovating. You're simply copying what has succeeded in the past, which is essentially adding to you know red water competition much more than it's generally creating you know a blue water true new innovative space. And I always look at the, you know, the most successful billion dollar inventions, you know, whether it's Zoom, which, you know, was on the face of it, a nonsensical idea, because you were trying to compete with Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, who offered video conferencing for free with a product you charged for. Okay. You know, completely insane on the face of it. Okay. Now, what's so interesting is that most billion dollar companies, Nespresso, there was no evidence that there was a market for people paying 60 pence for a coffee they had at home. Maybe there was romboats, those funny little, you know, standalone filters. But I mean, that was about as far as it went. Okay, and you know, you could you could have advanced enormous um, evidence to suggest that there's a maximum price that people are prepared to pay for a coffee in the case of Nespresso, or for a vacuum cleaner in the case of Dyson. You know, or for a drink in the case of Red Bull. Okay. You could have said th- these are complete outliers. There is no evidence in the past, but it's precisely because they're based on uh, a creative act of abductive inference that they have their unique power in the marketplace because they create a new, they discover a new space, they meet unmet demand rather than meeting existing demand in a slightly different way. Let's talk about what would have to be true in that case. The the cases, uh, the success cases that we just discussed, and I believe that uh, like probably most most breakthroughs are coming from startups, which I think by nature they're backed by people who go, we don't care if ninety nine percent of these ideas fail. It's okay for one to succeed, and that's whereas existing to... large companies and Nespresso is a complete outlier here. I, yes. Okay. Because it's a case of Nestle, a large corporation, doing generally innovating a new category. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. No one's but- done it for tea, by the way, which is the weirdest thing. Okay. Because <laughs> I've got 200 quid basically sitting in my wallet ready to spend on a fancy tea machine. machine. But no one's done it. But let's part that for it- now. It, uh, it, the, it- the story of Nespresso is quite interesting because it was a bit like the IBM PC division. It was an entity created at arm's length from head office, which in the case of Nespresso only survived, I think, because they lied about their results for a couple of years. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, okay, so, <laughs> so, uh, so Nespresso essentially was Nestle creating, you know, what was, if you like, a Silicon Valley. You know, I occasionally jokingly call it the Swiss Apple because it mm-hmm. is, you know, a hugely high yeah. margin, very successful, much loved business. I like it. I mean, I, you know, I'm a big Nespresso fan. Um, partly because first thing in the morning, I'm just not in the mood for a pour over V60 filter or grinding or tamping. You know, first thing in the morning, I just want my coffee shop then and there. But 
but it was do- it was done in a sense by accidentally mimicking you know a startup mm. mentality by giving it a degree of yep. uh, independence Which, that we- uh, wouldn't have been normal. I, I, Watson deliberately created the PC division in Boca Raton, which was a whole seaboard away from IBM headquarters in Armagh. Yeah. So, uh, which, as as we just discussed, it almost never happens, and part partly why it never happens is sort of bringing that uh, game theory idea is that people who are signing off on that they're playing a different game. They're playing a game of uh, you know not the directors don't want to be. Uh, taken to court for personal liability. So there are a lot of different checks and balances that 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 uh, have to be passed before people you are comfortable. You probably also have putting... a stock market which worships yeah. certainty. N- not and, not and, necessarily the owners of the stock, but the intermediaries who hold the stock, by which and, I mean the shareholders, not the share owners, and, probably and cert- have, have, a, have a preference for low-variance outcomes, which is detrimental to the short-term and low-variance outcomes. Exactly. Short-term was the <laughs> other thing that I wanted to add. Which is detrimental to the actual, uh, to the generation of wealth. Yeah, absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. So uh, in which in which case, it's um, it's not so much an argument that, oh, this is this works better. This, this op- opportunity to create through doing wild stuff works better in the long run because that's not what they're concerned with. What, what they're concerned with is uh, I might not have a job, you know, if, if the quarterly report shows a, a, a bad quarter. I'll tell you, a lo- a lo- here's a lovely story which illustrates that even within a corporation without the shareholders being involved, okay, which is how when you silo things, uh, you distort the risk uh, appetite of the overall organization. So Daniel Kahneman, famously, is speaking to the board of directors of a large American corporation. I've got a vague idea it might have been GE, but but he never actually says who it was. And he goes round the board to the heads of the various divisions, you know, the finance division, the huge metal things division, the lighting division, etc. And he goes, I can offer you a business decision right now which has a 50% chance of uh, increasing your revenue and profits next year by 50%. But it has a 30% chance of decreasing your revenue and profits by 30%. Would you take that bet? And he goes around the table and all but two of the directors said no, because 30% of the time I'd be out of a job. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the chief executive is sitting at the end of the table getting extremely distraught. And he said, but I'd want all of you to take those odds because net, net, we're going to end up a hell of a lot richer. Okay, we're going to have a hit in the lighting division and a bit of a hit in the large metal things division. Mm-hmm. But if the other divisions are all making 50% more, uh, if half of them are making 50% more, and only 30% of them are making 30% less, we end up a lot better off as GE, as do our shareholders. But none of you is willing to make this call. And so as we devolve responsibility with power to narrower and narrower silos within the organization. We first of all we destroy forms of activity which are merely speculative, okay? Because everybody is judged not on what the value they add to the organization; they're judged on value added to the organization as defined in their very narrow narrow job description. Okay, so I always argue my job as Ogilvy vice chairman is just to be completely random because it's to do things which nobody nobody else could do. You know, I go to conferences. I speak in podcasts about, about fucking game theory, right? Okay, all right. So the point is, now, I don't know what the size of your audience is, right? It might be 100 people. It might be 1,000 people. There may be nobody of any value to, uh, to Ogilvy on this audience. But equally, my logic is that speaking to 1,000 people over one hour is a lot more efficient than speaking to them one at a time because that would take me 1,000 hours, which is something like six weeks, right? Yep. And there's a fair chance that someone in six months' time gets in touch because their friend mentions the podcast and then mm-hmm. we have a conversation and then there's a 10% chance that that makes it through into some kind of business. But it's business we never would have obtained by any other means. Mm-hmm. And so my argument is that I'm basically a rogue bee. I'm not following the waggle dance. I'm going off at random deliberately because Ogilvy is undersupplied with people who are allowed to be random. Mm-hmm. And that's because we're paid by the hour and we're basically judged on the proportion of our time, which is billable. I get out of this because I do speaking engagements. I donate the speaker fees to Ogilvy to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. 
I'll be honest, twice a year, if it's at the weekend, I'll pocket the money. Okay, I'm not suggesting I'm whiter than white. You know, if I'm giving a talk on a Saturday or eight o'clock in the evening, to be honest, I might just pocket the money. But 95% of the time I give the money to Ogilvy. That makes me a very cheap vice chairman by the scheme of things. And it buys me a degree of autonomy. But my view is that actually, you know this thing in the beehive, don't you, that a certain proportion of bees ignore the waggle dance. And it's the exploit-explore trade-off hmm. as discovered okay. by nature. Because over 20 million years of evolution, bees have discovered that whereas short-term pollen and nectar collection would be optimized by having everybody obey the waggle dance, uh, it actually traps you in a local maximum. It makes Mm -hmm. you incredibly vulnerable to a change in the environment because you're over-dependent on what you already know and you're over-optimized on the past. Brilliant. And so 20% of the bees piss off at random. Now, importantly, when the bees then, the random bees make a discovery, they do dance about it. Okay, Uh, so 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 it's vital. But as a result, the explore feeds into exploit. Yeah. Okay. now, if you had very bad bee accountants, they look at the inefficient bees and over the short time period and they say 99 percent of your journeys are extraordinary inefficient waste of time and energy. Therefore, we're going to put you on waggle dance duties. But evolution has learned that if you do that, the hive basically goes extinct because it's incapable of adapting to new circumstances. But there's another disadvantage as well. You never get lucky, okay? You, 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 never, you never discover anything that nobody else knows. You, ne- you never actually, um, uh, you, you, you're not, you, you have a very low, if you only exploit what you already know, you have a very small surface area exposure to positive op- upside optionality, okay? And it's worth remembering that discoveries, I often argue that advertising should largely be looked at probabilistically that it's a fat-tailed activity, and the reason you advertise will never be measurable or accountable directly because a large part of the efficacy of advertising will never be attributable to a single act of advertising. But at larger scale, fame exposes you to large optional opportunities which you'll never actually discover if you keep yourself obscure. And, of course, opportunities are interesting. Someone comes to you with an idea. Okay, people want to work for you, so they apply to you because you're famous. People work for you for less money. When your chief executive rings someone up, the person's heard of you, so they ring back. Okay, it's impossible to quantify the value of all that shit. Okay, at the large generalizable level, uh, you know, a lot of advertising is going to be wasted, but you can never know what's going to be wasted in advance because you just don't know that much about the future. Okay. You can easily look back and say, with the benefit of hindsight, that 80% of my advertising was wasted because it so happened that the other 20% emerged. But if the 20% came from nowhere and you weren't capable of predicting it five years ago, stop trying to optimize around that 20% going forward because it's probably a mistake. Now, the other thing is that when people come to you and offer you opportunities, of course, they are, that is a positive event because you have the opportunity to take up the option or turn it down, okay? So advertising generally creates optionality, not optimality. And I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to turn it into a physics problem where it's about efficiency, not effectiveness. And actually, it's the very, it's the very inefficiencies of advertising that make it magical and make it work. We have so many, well, not so many. Actually, we have way more books written about um, five steps to success that work everywhere, right? And that sort of stuff, which which is mostly rubbish. But uh, we have some books and some bestsellers like Phil Rosenzweig's um, The Halo Effect, which, which do talk about uh, probabilistic thinking and probabilistic decisions. And uh, it, it's something that makes sense both from a logical point of view as well as the, the, the that's that's how the whole venture capitalist basically system works so it, it makes sense from the money point of view why is it then so difficult to actually get large corporates or people in general to understand this uh i think you could solve the problem uh you would need For the full version of our nearly two-hour-long conversation with Rory, subscribe to Business Games Premium, which you can subscribe to at www.business-games.ai. The full link is in the show notes. And now, back to the final half-hour of the conversation. 
the the other thing to remember, of course, in any marketing activity is there are su- there are two super forces at work on human behavior, which are respectively habit and social copying or mimetics. Mm. Okay, we tend to have social perception, never mind social behavior. Okay, we tend to perceive as cool those things that other people think of as cool. Um, uh, so, so advertising, mass advertising, creates the the a kind of social imprinting. Okay, which is that. You know, the fact that it's entirely appropriate to serve PIMS an outdoor garden party is basically the product of a kind of social convention. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's both limiting for the brand and an opportunity, obviously, for the brand. But that, but those two megaforces mean that in the case of innovation, you always have an uphill struggle to get people to change their habits or to do or to be in a minority in adopting something early, you know. I mean, I, I was very amused by this because I've decided to buy the Ford Mustang Mach-E as a car. Um, New Zealand has very few electric charging stations. Is that right? I was reading about this because, because of this. I've been reading about nothing else for flaming months. Okay, not but, fair um, enough. Uh, it, it, but the it's, Mustang Mach-E. What was so changing. amusing to me is that you know I'm there trying to save the planet, and people are going, "What are you driving a Mustang for?" Right? And I'm mm-hmm. kind of going, "I didn't expect you know a whole heap of grief about my brand preference." You know, mm-hmm. I was expecting you to go, thank you for saving our polar bears, Rory. Did I bollocks? I got a, mm-hmm. you were deviating by not buying a Tesla. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was basically the reaction I got from everybody. You're basically, you know, you're not quite to be trusted. You're a bit of a weirdo because you didn't do the obvious <laughs> thing and buy a Tesla Model 3. And I kind of push against this because it distorts markets, you see. Um, Roger Martin, Roger L. Martin, a business writer, says, if you want to practice ethical capitalism, one way you can practice ethical capitalism as a consumer is just when you have very mild, um, when, the, when the distinction between two courses of action are mild, fight against the Pareto distribution. Buy the mm-hmm. second most popular thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Because you're actually doing a service to markets by fighting against this winner-takes-all problem that tends to emerge as a product mm-hmm. of human perception. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think subconsciously that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do because I tend to not like things that are. Um, uh, I was into into Apple when they were nearly bankrupt, and then as they took off, I was like, okay, I'm not doing that. Uh, interestingly enough, after, you, yeah, yeah. after 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 yeah, so recently, because of their privacy thing, I'm kind of switching. You know, trying to go back, and I'm kind of like, okay, well, they they're, they're taking privacy, but uh, you know, the yeah. Anyway, go on. You you were saying. No, it is interesting, which is I have a, you know, I, I use an Android phone um, and um, I have a slight, <clears throat> I have a slight tendency by default to go against the flow of, of preset social defaults because it's my job. It's how, mm-hmm. how do you get people to do it? And I'm conscious of the fact that there are hu- hugely lower social costs to doing something conventional if, if things turn out badly than mm-hmm. there are if you do something eccentric, Okay. And that that that's doubly so in business, but it also applies in consumer decisions. You know, if you have a bad meal at McDonald's, you're unlucky. If you have a bad meal at a you know weird street, you know, yeah, food van. If you have a dodgy kebab from a van, it's your fault, right? Yeah. And so we have the you know I always make the point that the magical property of Coke is that you can ask for it anywhere in the world without seeming weird. Not true mm-hmm. of Dr Pepper, is it? Go to a Michelin star restaurant, ask for a Dr <laughs> Pepper Zero, and see how they react. Right, a they won't have it, and b you'll be treated as a bit of a pariah for the rest of the meal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm always interested in the extent to which those kind of mimetic forces, but also forces of habit. And of course, habit is becomes increasingly rational the older you are, because you have more explore to, to draw on, and you have less benefits to discovery mm. because your future mm-hmm. lifespan is shorter. So this is why having teenage children is a real pain, because when it comes to going on holiday, they always want to go somewhere new. And I always go, we went to Madeira last time, and it was perfectly <laughs> satisfactory, so I think we should just go back again. You know, And they're going, I want to go to the Rio Carnival. I go, oh, it sounds terrible. I'll probably have my wallet stolen, you know, and uh, yep. you know, end up getting beaten up. And um, so, you know, notice this, that, you know, the exploit, explore. Mm. One of the reasons mm-hmm. teenagers are, are, are frustrating is because socially they're heavily calibrated towards explore because making social capital, accumulating social capital early in life has mm-hmm. a much greater payoff than waiting till you're older. Yeah. So in, in, in general, we should encourage. We've got uh, our eldest will be 
and you know in the in the next two two years or so she'll be entering the uh, the teenage years she's she's on the cusp so did, were you born in New Zealand? Your accent No, I was, not. I, I was, well, okay. So I was born in Soviet Union. I moved here when I was 15, but I spent all my 20s in Germany. That's that's where I did my oh, PhD. Interesting. That, that's interesting because you had, a, you had, a, yeah, I was trying to place you between Russia and Germany, funnily enough. Yeah. So that wasn't, that wasn't bad what I was doing. Was uh, so good, how did yeah. you end up in New Zealand? Um, the, my, here's an interesting thing. Yeah, go way. ahead. I was, find it really weird. I've been to Australia. I've never been to New Zealand. Yeah. I always oh, find it come. really weird that Australians want to come to Europe and want to come and live and work in London. <laughs> and my view is they're in sh- insane. Okay. What, you know, I've been to Sydney. Okay. I, and is it the grass is always greener? Is yeah. it that your status within New Zealand and Australia depends on you having traveled? So in other words, if you're an Aussie and you've never left Australia because you can't crap on about the Sagra Familia in Barcelona, did you find it difficult to pull as an Aussie if you haven't done that kind of Europe shit? Okay. No, What's going I think. On it... because, so okay. Because, I mean, go on. I've got a, tell, I got a tell... hypothesis, but I don't think it's that. It actually. So I I am going to uh, I I I will keep this in, and I'll probably get flagged from from New Zealanders, but. There is a lot of perception from expats who had spent, you know, a significant amount of time abroad. Like a lot of people go to London and yeah. then stay for 10 years and then they go, okay, now we're having kids and the kids are kind of, and we want grandparents around. That was our decision to, you know, to Bang, straight back, back to Auckland. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and then uh, what happens is that a lot of people come in and, and uh, they actually can't land very good jobs because the good jobs are taken by those who have stayed behind. Oh, I see. And therefore, so you get these people a, who are kind of overqualified, but they've kind of, missed yeah. out on interest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it you know some some people who know me might might claim that oh you're just bitter. Well, maybe yeah, but you know it's not it's not my pers- my only my pers- like I've I've heard it from a lot of people. So okay, so so there is that. The in terms of to to be fair. Like Melbourne is a huge city. Sydney is a huge city. I mean, yeah, basically yeah. each one of them has has the population of New Zealand roughly about, right? Just just in one, in one city. So we're talking about five million cities. So they're like decent. There, there's a lot of stuff happening. So I, for me, Auckland is probably the smallest one I could actually survive in. Uh, I miss yeah. Berlin. We lived in Berlin. I I, I think Berlin is amazing. The uh, the reason why people would go to you know somewhere else first of all it's that there is a historical connection being part of the commonwealth you know part of the empire before so you go like "Ooh, how is how is this sort of you know we've separated ourselves but there's still that that feeling that the mothership is somewhere and you want to go and check it out the uh, the other thing is obviously europe is uh it is brilliant it's uh everything is close right you can go you can hop on a train and and be in Paris for you know for for a night or for a weekend. You can't do it from Sydney, Melbourne, or Auckland. Um, so there is that sort of discovery, and you know you 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 want to discover something new to yourself, reconnect with the roots, and that sort of stuff. And then uh, quite often, as you you go. Oh, now it's dynamic. So there is lots of parties. Uh, you know, you can you can travel all over Europe. As I say, if you have a job in yeah. London, for example, so then then you can hop onto the continent. You can go to France not for the anymore. Weekend, yeah, maybe no, maybe no, not, not that anymore. easily anymore. But of, course, but... of course, in New Zealand, you've got to fly for about eight hours before they start speaking a different language, haven't you? No, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Our closest neighbor. No, 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 no. Our closest neighbor is France. Oh, of course, because you can go to that weird island. Is it? Um... Yeah, New Caledonia. New so that's, ex- that's, that's, that's actually yeah that's that's actually yeah. the the closest yeah. uh, the the closest neighbor but it's it's closer than australia uh, fractionally yeah, but but grief. closer anyway uh, and still part of france although i think i believe they're talking about uh, but you know they, they have a referendum for independence but you know technically they are part of france so it's funny but we have we've got france <laughs> the closest neighbor anyway the um so I think that's that. And I think it's life stage dependent. As I say, there are a lot of, uh, like you would leave in your 20s, you would spend your 20s somewhere else and you'd come yeah. back in your 30s. Um, and a bit much of it, like- Australians say, is FOMO. You just feel, because you're you know geographically remote, that you're missing out on stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
To be honest, course, you're not really. I, mean, I don't think you're missing very much. I, I mean, I, a few I, castles and cathedrals and shit. I get that. You know, I don't, but I'm not sure. I mean, it's a very interesting question, which is one of the things I've always remarked on is that, and I, 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 I use this as an argument of should you live in London or should you live somewhere else, uh, which is that the internet has made what you might call the provincial deficit much less. Mm-hmm. Because it used to be, if you wanted a good bookshop, you had to live in a big city. If you, you know, mm-hmm. and actually, first of all, two things have happened: smaller cities have become much more interesting. Okay, so if you go to a small or mid-sized English city, to be honest, if you went to them, with the exception of a few, Bristol, Cardiff was always a bit interesting. Bristol was interesting. Edinburgh was interesting, but there are a lot of quite large cities in the UK which are pretty dull and utilitarian. And that isn't the case now. The restaurant food scene, the ethnic food scene, you know, mm-hmm. generally that's improved. But the internet means that, of course, retail, there's no reason to be anywhere in, yep. in terms of retail. Um, in terms of, you know, attending interesting conferences and talks, well, you know, the pandemic's changed that a bit. Admittedly, mm-hmm. I've often wondered whether New Zealand needs to go into this weird uh, scheme where you actually have a working day which goes from like 7 to, to 11 and then from sort of 8 to midnight. Yeah, because, I, that's, that's know, an interesting. If you work idea. internationally in New Zealand, you know yep. you can catch both the west coast of the states early in the morning, yep. and yep. you can catch the whole of Europe, and yep. I guess the east coast just about late at night. So you can I, cover the world. I see the benefit just of work doing really weird hours. No, I actually see the benefit of do, of doing exactly sticking with our hours because we can take, uh, you know, we can take a brief in what's a European night, ah, uh, you know, yeah. or evening. And then we can turn it around, and by the time that you show up in the office, like we've we've got some, uh, you know, so so effectively you could design a twenty four hour company, but just having an you know an office in in New Zealand, there's still enough. You're right, there is still an overlap for meetings, um, but yeah. also there is some time for for that dedicated kind of deep thinking, and then you're not actually required to have any meetings, and then you can actually get the work done. That's uh, but I, I will come and visit one day. So, uh, funnily enough, I've got tons of relatives out there. They're all a family called Townsend. I'm trying to find out whether I'm related to the man who invented the flat white, who is a guy called Townsend. Okay, um, but about yeah, um, let me get this right. My 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 mother had a great uncle. I think this is right, who basically died childless and left a large farm to ten brothers or something. Wow. Extraordinary. No, ten nephews. Was it? It might have been nephews. Sorry. You, yeah. It might have been his brothers. It might have been his nephews. But he left people this chunk of the farm, and about eight of them sold up and went to New Zealand. And I had an uncle who actually used to be flown out to New Zealand because he was the world's leading expert in black mountain sheep, and so he used to be okay. flown out to judge agricultural competitions out there. Um, uh, but um, I, I, it's a place I've, I've been dying to go to for ages, and I've never yet managed it. So it's about the last thing on my bucket list, to be honest. Yeah, so well, you're, uh, you're in Auckland, then. Yeah, I am in Auckland. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, but, it's, uh, but the quality of life there is magical. I think, isn't it? It is really fantastic. Well, apart from the fact that you can't afford a house, but apart from that, it, this has happened, is it? You've had the same boom that it's not like the had... shortage of space, though, is it? I no no it's not the shortage of space it's uh, I don't even know I like nobody can figure out what the hell it is but it it's weird the uh, we have about we might have the the most unaffordable housing of of it all because mm. our uh, wages tend to be lower and the house prices are yes. just ridiculous so the the number of years that it takes you know how it's kind of you can you can get your mortgage uh, kind of validated in years it's uh, the the price the price of a house in years is one of the top in the world. I don't well, I don't remember theory, what it is, okay. but it's okay. just ridiculous. Wait for, wait for your kids to leave home and then just buy a huge American motorhome. Go and live in that. <laughs> yeah, can can do. Like we're fine. We're on the outskirts of Auckland. We are in a uh, very. Uh, we're actually in the native bush. It's 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 interestingly enough. Yeah. It's a 1929 villa. Um, but it was uh, relocated here in the 90s, and it's uh, in in inside the native bush. It's the best of both worlds. It's it's nice oh, character perfect. home, yeah. and lovely setting. It's, it's great. Nassim, Nassim Taleb is the only person I know who actually advocates for suburbia, because he argues that you can get to the countryside very quickly and you can get to the town very quickly. You know, so you actually have a high variance, which is what we want. You see, whereas yeah. if you're in the middle nice. of the town, you're stuck in town, and if you're in the country, you're stuck in country. Yeah, makes sense. He's got a point. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 it has. And, and that's uh, it, the seems argument is that often the right solution, uh, the, the optimal solution, is found in the degree of variance, not in the average value. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Also, optionality, right? And yeah. Yeah. Uh, optionality versus optimality. So if if you if you have options, you can then think. And that's that's what attracts me to, for example, to a city like Berlin, for example, because we, yeah. uh, even though every day we wouldn't, we had. My normal routine was I walked to work, I walked into an apartment, I spent time in the apartment, I slept, and then I worked. And that's like, I can do it at home. I mean, I don't actually need to leave the house right now. The But if there was something that was taking place, I mean, there was an option to go uh, and, and uh, yes. get to that concert. And and so that's that's for me. But Berlin, of course, had the particular thing of, of low property yeah. prices in the former East, which was an used, extraordinary used, yeah, gift. That, Incredible creative gift to a city, actually low yeah, property that, prices. That 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 is correct. But most of Germany is interesting uh, because it's it's sprawled out. Like even you've got more jobs. There are more workers in Frankfurt than there are there is a population of Frankfurt. So the population yeah. is something like one million, and there is one million a hundred thousand working places so and, and what that means is you've got all these villages that are out of you know around frankfurt yeah. where you can uh, and, and there is take ruhrgebiet which is uh where where sort of Köln, dusseldorf and so on so you you can go from one city into another city without there is this sprawl sprawling area which covers about 20 million people and you can easily live in a in a village you know and and maybe even and close work in to frankfurt a, to, close to Frank, yeah, close to a forest, and then go to. You see, the, the disadvantage. I, I wrote a piece about this, suggesting that all futurism assumes that the future of the world is living in mega cities in high density housing, mm. and we shouldn't assume this because uh, actually we see over longer periods of history their fashions forward moving out, driven often by technology. Yeah. Okay, the railways, and their fashions towards moving in, and they tend to oscillate. The difference between a city of a million is if you work in a city of a million, you can be as rural or as urban as you like. Mm -hmm. If you live in a city of seven million, particularly if you're a dual income household where both of you have to commute to somewhere central, Mm -hmm. okay, it's very century petal. And so, you know, in a city like Newcastle or Bristol, you can basically live on the outskirts, commute in, you can live in the country Mm -hmm. and commute in. It's not so big. In London, you can do it, but it's big money. You know, mm. it's big, big season ticket money for two of you to do it. Is mm-hmm. you know that's mm-hmm. six thousand pounds mm-hmm. a year. That's hurting, right? That's After a lot. Yeah. Mm. And so, what tends to happen is that um, uh, what tends to happen, I think, is that uh, uh, you know, big cities tend to destroy optionality. The price you pay is there are more things you can do in the middle, but to be honest, you're only doing three percent of them anyway. Okay. That, that's, and yeah, that correct. optionality, which is I can go in and be more urban, I can go mm. out and be more rural, gets destroyed once you reach a certain critical mass. Mm. Yeah, um, because you're forced point. to live in. Yeah. yeah. Well, the largest anyway, city. I'm, I'm I... sorry, I've got a, I've got a dash, but no, if you want to catch go, up go again, f- I'd be absolutely delighted. Would love to. Hey, so, um, so, so where, where, where do you work in New Zealand? Tell me what what, what your work involves. Because... Uh, well, I I well, right now from home, right? Even, even though we have a yeah. uh, we have an office in the city, so I I run a consulting company. Uh, we had um, uh, Westpac as a client for seven years, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's it's. Uh, you know, we've got the we had the New Zealand division of it, but uh, Australasian Westpac uh, is one of clients of Mark Ritson actually, and and Westpac Group Brilliant. is is one yeah. of uh, one of the largest is one of the four largest Australasian banks basically. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, we we have uh, another large company at the moment um, uh, uh, on the retainer, but the the work I'm developing this actually as a an educational podcast, so I that's something that. I want to afford um, a lot of a lot of my time at the moment too, and uh, that's that I can do from anywhere. So no, this is this is this has been absolutely fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. It's been incredibly interesting. And my point is that I think the problem in a lot of business is we need to be talking to mathematicians and we're talking to accountants. So 
we need people who understand concepts like you know the explore exploit trade-off search costs you know we yeah. need people who understand the nuances of complex models and instead we're talking to people with effectively clump clunky additive models mm. one of the one of the genesis uh ideas how how this project came about is that it's some time ago um uh, a client asked me to train uh, their mid managers in um, uh, basics of statistics and basics of game theory. And um, by the time we ended up actually putting together a course, uh, there was a restructure. So that never took place. But the idea started germinating. And I thought, uh, because I always felt like we shouldn't have let's say analytics managers and whatever else right it it should be a, a marketer should be able to discuss the uh, you know the validity of data and should be able to ask questions of it uh, and and you know a person who used to be an analytics manager should should be creative and should have ideas uh, yes. because that as we discussed that leads to actually good hypotheses so i always felt like the combining various skill sets is the way to go so I, and i thought how would i teach it and um this this is kind of a at some stage i started thinking about this podcast form as as a way to do it well i think also behavioral science has a very big role to play because if you don't understand what people are really trying to do which isn't necessarily even what they say or think they're trying to do you end up with this thing they call in ai the alignment problem mm -hmm. you see and also of course we don't even understand how people perceive things it's yeah. worth remembering that um, uh, that perception, okay, is um, uh, very, very different from is non-objective, and so you can look at all the objective measures of what you're changing, but actually the meaning of that change can be huge or tiny, dependent on perceptual cues. It's rather mm -hmm. the fact that nobody realizes that televisions are made for higher primates. They only work for higher primates because we mm -hmm. see red, green, blue. Okay. Yeah. Gorillas would look at a TV. I don't know if they're bright enough to watch television. Um, they probably are. But they'd probably look at a television and go, yeah, that pretty much looks like reality. That looks like a jungle. If you showed it to a parrot or a cat mm -hmm. or a dog, it would look completely different. Mm -hmm. And it would look ridiculous. And so if we don't understand what people are perceiving as distinct from what we're signaling, we'll, we'll effectively misdirect a huge amount of optimization effort by trying mm -hmm. to optimize on reality rather than trying to optimize on perception. Yeah. Rory, uh, uh, two very quick questions. Um, one is, what would you leave the audience uh, with in terms of homework? What, what could they do slash read uh, in order to explore um, or train well, themselves in this thinking more? I mean, Cialdini, Kahneman, um, uh, you know, uh, Dan Ariely, uh, you know, those behavioral science books are all very good. They're popular for a reason. Um, I think my book's a useful addition to the canon. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I'm not really a scientist. I'm a behavioral science impresario. Mm -hmm. um, but but um, there are also some very interesting books, which, are, um, you know, uh, there's this one by, um, I, I, I've just read, there's The Alignment Problem by Brian Christian. And Brian Christian and a chap called Griffiths have also co-authored a book called Algorithms to Live By, which mm -hmm. would be interesting. In game theory, I'm intrigued to know what you'd recommend. Because I've never, there is a book called Jane Austen is, was a game theorist, which I've interestingly never read. And it, it's always fascinated me, not least because of the title. Um, I should, I but, should look um, it up. Um, hold on a second. I'm, I'm blanking out. There, there's a fantastic book that's. Because um, uh, I've always been at a loss for one to recommend on that field. Oh my god! It'll come to me in a second. This is really embarrassing. It's one of the things that I recommend to everybody. But it's just I'm blanking out both on the. Um, okay, give me a second. So the um, the other thing maybe what what about you talked of doing the what is the crossword that the the type of crosswords you're doing the cryptic cryptic crosswords as cryptic crosswords, yeah, yeah. as 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 training for you know for this type of thinking. What are the uh, things like that that you could recommend that could be good ways to train you know train the uh, the unconventional thinking a, a, a muscle business as it were. audience a business audience i'd also recommend reading roger l martin because he's written a book for example called when more is not better overcoming america's obsession with economic efficiency 
And I think we've got into this problem space in business where we conflate efficiency with effectiveness and it simply doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, um, I'd also recommend reading some of the more nuanced writers in the business field uh, who have a better understanding of how business really creates value um, than uh, uh, we're currently managing to... Uh, 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 I, th- I think our current way in which we measure things and therefore the things we try and optimise are often wrong. I'd also get interested in the field of ergodicity, which I haven't mentioned because it's a whole field in itself. But I'd have a look at ergodicity economics, which shows how we tend to effectively get our statistical idea of an average wrong. Mm-hmm. Because a time series average under multiplicative dynamics is very, very different from um, an, a, an average under an ensemble average in a single shot game. And therefore, mm-hmm. we tend to get the whole concept of what is rational. We get it fundamentally wrong. So those right. are the areas of mathematical exploration. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank you. I've uh, looked up the... So. I've looked up the uh, the book. It's called The Art of Strategy, and it's by Barry Nailbuff and Avinash Dixit. Yes, and right. I the think Art of Strategy by Barry Nailbuff. Uh, okay, and I'll, Avinash I'll, I'll give you a marketing one. Uh, Art of Strategy, and if you could just give me one of those names, uh, I've got it. A, a, a Game Theorist's Guide to Success. Yep, I've got it. I've got it here. In which case, I'll give you one in return, which is Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Reese and Trout, which is a kind of game-theoretic marketing behavioral science book. It's old, Mm -hmm. but it's still good. Cool. Thank you. Um, In which case, I've just found this on Amazon, and I'm just going to hit one click now. Go for it. um, I can get it as an audio book. I can get it as a Kindle. Oh, God, I'd never decide now. Um, I think I might get this as a a, 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 a paperback. Then go on. I'll buy it as a paperback. Pro- prob- probably best. I, I have it as yeah. an audiobook. I've listened to half of it, but I also want to get it as a paperback because I think it's really good and it requires uh, actual thing, you know, uh, reflection and, and paper stuff. It's, uh, for me, that works better. Weirdly, weirdly, none of these are available on Amazon Prime, which makes absolutely no sense to mm. me. But there we go. I uh, highly recommend. Uh, this, this one is good. That, thank so. you very much indeed. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Anything that, that's fantastic. Anything that, that, uh, that, that you are uh, you are doing a lot of stuff in this area, but anything that you want to particularly plug, uh, keeping in mind that this episode will probably show up in a couple of months' time. Oh, in which case I'd also recommend uh, the, the, um, uh, the Choice Factory by Richard Schotten. Oh, yes. Also an amazing. I've, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, um, that's a pre-order book. Um, boom, 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 boom. Okay, so they're not that prime delivery. That's really weird. Tuesday, October tomorrow. Okay, so the hard books. So why is the art of strategy? How interesting. Why is that not available on bloody Prime? Okay, I wonder if Amazon is actually just awkwardly deciding. A game of this. Um, uh, so they've taken Sun Tzu's The Art of War. I see. Right, 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 right. So this is weird. Only from Audible. Why does it say that? Audiobook one credit. Is the audiobook usable? It's a good start. Um, get that, and if you want more, uh, you you know get. So I I got it as an audiobook on, uh, and I've uh, I've listened to it, and I've subsequently decided that I want to get a paperback. But I think it's uh, so. I think I, w- I, I I wonder if this is in a case of an alignment problem where Amazon is deliberately not prime offering certain books, so you buy the Kindle huh. or the audiobook. Okay. Which is in starting. To, I, okay, I'm going to try the audiobook to start with because it's bloody free. I yeah, okay. I would not recommend. I would no, not I've recommend the Kindle one. Credit. Yeah, no, okay, I, uh, that's, that's, that's good do enough. that. That's 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 what I've done. Uh, in terms of in terms of tea, I'll do a plug for a friend. Uh, check this out. It's uh, so I've sent you a Tealka. It's a uh, award winning Australian tea company it's it's oh. uh, it it won a lot of awards it's really premium it's it's uh, it's organic as well and it's really really good 
Oh, brilliant. Okay, so you sent that? No, I've sent it. I've sent it to the chat in the in in the Riverside. Oh, I'm but sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I can I'm so have, have a look. There's a link. It's called Teal. Let me have a look at this chat. No, really, I can't. Why can't I find chat? Oh, chat too. There we are. Fantastic. Ah, okay. I'm going to have a look at that. And do they ship to the UK? This looks fantastic. They ship. They ship all over. Yes, they ship all over the place. They've got a subscription service if you want. They 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 ship. They, yeah, they have uh, customers in uh, in the UK. They won an award from um, uh, one UK magazine uh, whose name escapes me, but it's a famous one. Uh, oh, that'd be fantastic! Yeah. So for the audience, it's T I E L K A, Tilka dot com. Ah, because T two was an Australian brand. That was Melbourne, wasn't it originally? I think. Yes. And then you leave. Yes, yes, it. it was. Yes, but they sold out. Uh, they still, well, they 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 they, they uh, took advantages of expansion opportunities. Uh, yes, you know, yes. Uh, uh, I, I can't yeah. blame them for selling to Unilever. There, there no, are worse people so. to work for, but as well as well. But this looks fantastic. Thank you very yeah, much indeed. This... What a, what a right. pleasure! And if you want to do a catch up anytime, I'd be absolutely delighted. I also Rory. know, by the way, when I hang up, I'll let it upload. Yes, lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, I. All the best. Uh, you're incredibly generous and I thank you very much for all of our interactions also in the past via Twitter and thank you Rory huge I, huge pleasure see you one day in Auckland I hope all the best I, I hope so too this episode is a part of our paid strategic thinking and leadership program where we deliver executive education through a series of deep dives and expert interviews into the topics of strategy decision making uncertainty creativity and leadership Learn more and become a premium member at www.business-games.ai forward slash about. Thank you for listening and hope to see you amongst our growing numbers of fellow learners.